Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, delighted to be joined by Eric Fulweiler, the founder and CEO of We Are Rival. Eric, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. Really happy to be here. Delighted to have you. Typical fashion of the show, Eric. We go back right to the beginning. A couple of questions about you so the audience gets to know you, and then we'll get into all good things. If I've done my research correct, you grew up in a town outside of Boston called Newton. That's I could correct. be pronouncing that wrong, but tell me what life was like growing up there. Any favorite memories, hobbies? Wow. Um, yeah. So I grew up in Newton, which is a town outside of Boston, a suburb of Boston. Um, I'm trying to think what would be most relevant. I mean, you know, grew up kind of middle-class family. My parents were both doctors. Um, I played a lot of sports growing up. I had two siblings. So it was a lot of like, hey, you know, you go outside after school, play sports and come home for dinner type of thing. Um, did, uh, did school stuff, did a lot of music as I was growing up. So I think that it was pretty typical, you know, you and I got connected when I worked for Gary V. I don't have a story like his, where it's like, oh, I was an entrepreneur from day one and I had lemonade stands and baseball cards and all that stuff. I think I was just a kid, you know, and I did the stuff that I liked. I, I will say maybe relevant to this conversation again, thinking back on it now. And like you said, and I know we'll talk about it just launched this week, my first business completely on my own, my own thing. Um, I think one of the things I've realized about myself is that I really either do something completely or not at all. And it's one of those things you cut, you realize it when you're older, maybe, but then you look back and you're like, oh man, I've been that way all along. So for me, whether it was sports, whether it was music, less frequently, if it was school, you know, I was all in on it when I did it. And that's what's been, I think that's what's given me some of the confidence about doing my own thing is there's so much against any new company being successful, but I know for sure it won't fail for lack of effort on my part because I'm incredibly focused and invested in giving it all that I have. And if it doesn't work out, that's fine, but at least I won't regret it. Definitely want to pick some of those learnings apart. But before we get into that, influence and impact is a question I like to ask my guests. What I mean by that is if you think of young Eric, like preteen, early teen, people can usually pinpoint a close friend, a teacher, uh, a family relative that had a massive impact on young Eric that's helped you become the person today. Does anybody spring to mind for you? Yeah, a few people. There's a lot of family influence back then, as you can imagine, before you get into the professional stuff. So from a family perspective, um, you know, my dad is an MD, PhD in neuropsychology. So growing up with him, even when I was old enough to remember, he was still in, you know, doing degrees and his research and he worked a lot. Um, I don't think that necessarily took anything away from like my relationship with him, but he definitely had an influence on my work ethic in that respect. And my mom as well. She worked an almost full-time job as an oncologist while raising three kids. So I think that was there and ingrained in the DNA and culture of our family from the very beginning. And it definitely rubbed off on me. Um, I also had a lot of influence from two people. One, my aunt, who um, spent a lot of time with us growing up. She was almost more like a kind of like a nanny figure than an aunt, really. And she was a professional athlete. Uh, as a woman, and this was in the 80s and 90s. So, you know, she was a bit of an outlier in that sense. 
and again, the kind of work ethic and, you know, I remember these things, she would be the one who would often take me to soccer practice, sorry, football practice or baseball practice or whatever it was. Um, and she would always push me to kind of make sure I gave it my all when I did it. And then the last one I'll mention, because it's a very specific story that I actually love telling my uncle, my dad's brother, he was a division one American football player at the University of West Virginia, which is a pretty big name football school. And he got injured and, you know, didn't go on to become a professional or anything like that. But he lived with us for a couple of years. And I remember one time, you know, I was like 14 and just getting into weights and he came in and he worked out with me and he said something to the extent of, you know, the people who end up being the best are the ones that give it everything they have. And then they do two more. And that has just run in my head every time I'm in the gym, every time I'm working on something for work, every time I'm thinking about my family, you know, I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing, I'm giving it my all, but that I'm doing two more, whatever that means in the context yeah. of what it is. Two more phone calls at the end of the day, two more reps in the gym. I love it. Um, before we move on to all things marketing, because that's what your career encompasses, that you have a BA in international development from McGill University. Where did that come from? So you've done your research. Um, yeah. So funnily enough, a lot of people don't know this. I actually went to McGill originally to the music school. I was going to be a jazz musician. I played tenor saxophone and I played all the other woodwind instruments. If you play saxophone, you want to be a professional, you play tenor sax, alto, clarinet, flute. I played all of those. Mm. Uh, and I loved it. And that was my life. And to what I was saying before, you know, I practiced six, eight hours a day. I played gigs on the weekends in Montreal and Toronto and even back in Boston. Um, and then I realized I didn't want to try to be a professional musician. Like that career path can be amazing if you make it, but very, very few people do. And if you don't, it just wasn't something that I wanted to do. So I realized that. And luckily my parents had nudged me to go to a university instead of a conservatory. So I was able to switch out and get a degree in something that was relevant to a different career path. Um, and so I did international development because I was always interested in, it was more than travel. It's just kind of the world and how it developed, you know, history, economics, sociology, all that. And also international development was one of the degrees that would allow me to transfer some of my credits from the music school. So I only still had to do four years instead of more. Uh, so that's what I ended up doing. I went down to South Africa. I wrote a thesis on the politics of water management in South Africa, which I will send you a copy if you're interested in reading it. Um, and yeah, I thought I was going to be on a path to doing nonprofit, you know, my first job, maybe you're going to get onto this. My first job after university was with the Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS initiative. I thought I was going to do something like that, maybe work for the government, state department, diplomat type of path, but uh, you never know what the future holds. But yes, I ended up with that degree in international development. And um, I think the other thing I would say is I, I thought a lot about what I wanted to be when I grow up, you know, when I was little, but even when I was, you know, 18, going to university, 22, graduating university, and I think it's the wrong question to ask yourself or to ask people. I think a lot of people are really hung up on like, what is that one thing that I should be working towards? What's the perfect answer? And I think life doesn't work that way. And the best parts of life don't work that way. Because if you are only focused on trying to find the one thing, you're going to lose sight of all these other opportunities that come up. So I think it's much less about what you want to be and more who you want to be and really understanding who you are and putting yourself in a situation where you're always learning, always growing, always crossing paths with good people. And then the opportunities are going to come up for you. And are you hinting at spending your twenties trying as many things as possible to find what it is for you that you enjoy? Totally. I mean, I, I, so I did a year with the Clinton foundation. 
And I just got, I remember feeling a little bit frustrated because I was, I mean, first of all, the gig was, I was stationed in New York for Latin America. So I was going to the Bahamas, Jamaica, Trinidad, Tobago. It wasn't the worst place for your first job out of college. But what was frustrating to me is I felt like I wasn't having an impact. You know, we were working with these ministries of health. And I remember I'd be spending 60, 70 hours a week just in a basement taking uh, patient records from a spreadsheet and putting them into, uh, you know, a computer. And I was like, what am I, I feel like I'm not making a difference here. And so I got a little bit disillusioned with that. And I said, okay, uh, you know, private sector, that's where you can really have an impact on things, business, that's what changes stuff. So let's go in that direction. And so um, I was in New York, you know, I knew some people who knew some people, I took a lot of meetings, I was like, I'm going to figure out something to do. I ended up sitting down with um, the CEO of Forbes.com. It's actually a completely separate thing back then. The magazine was in one building, .com was in another. And um, he, I remember him saying, he's like, we need somebody to figure out this social media thing. And I'm using air quotes for people who can't see. And I was like, all right, I'm young. I've got Facebook. I'll give it a shot. And so that's what pulled me in completely serendipitously. I was by no means a social media expert or anything mm -hmm. like that. I think I was the last of my friends to get a Facebook page and um, just figured it out. I learned it. There were a lot of people kind of figuring it out. These were the very early days. It's called Web 2.0 back then. You know, Gary was starting to get into it, of course, a lot of other people. Uh, but I kind of taught myself and got plugged into that community. And that's where I met Gary and uh, ended up joining VaynerMedia pretty early on. And you've got a, a ton of management experience to date. And that's where I'd like to focus on some of your earlier management roles. You spent time, you've already alluded to, group director at VaynerMedia for two years, then a further two years in Mullen as a VP or account director. So in those, specifically focusing on those kind of four years, um, are there one or two skills that when you look back, you can admit that perhaps you weren't so great at, but since then you've improved on um, as you moved into other ventures and, and roles? And if so, what are those one or two skills that you can look back with, with a smile now and go, I wasn't great at them, but I know that I've improved on them since. We could do a four-hour podcast on all the things I didn't know <laughs> and all the mistakes that I made. And I think that's a good thing because if you're not making mistakes, you're not learning. Mm -hmm. um, I'm Every year I reread this book called Principles by Ray Dalio. And probably a lot of the people listening have read it already. If not, definitely check it out. But I'm, I'm literally rereading it right now. And he says uh, something in there and different people have different quotes to the same extent. Pain plus reflection equals progress. And I fundamentally believe that with anything, your career, your personal life, definitely when it comes to sports or fitness, there's an obvious extension to that metaphor there. But man, I mean, I was, because I joined VaynerMedia very early on, we were figuring it out as we go along, as we went along. And it grew incredibly quickly. It was 15 people when I joined, it was 300 people two years later. And so because I was there early on and because you know, I guess I had some natural talent in the management strategy area. I got elevated very quickly to group account director uh, well before I had the experience or skill set to be doing it. It was me and, and this guy, Marcus, who is still there, and he's the chief of staff for VaynerX overall. Um, and I can't speak for him, but for me, I was definitely figuring it out. And in a way that was good, it was painful because I was pushed well beyond my comfort zone. But because I had people around me like Gary and AJ, and we had a fantastic uh, managing director at Vayner at the time, 
they supported me, but I definitely have a lot of scars that have healed over and made me stronger from that time. But it was, it was, I mean, you name any management skill set, and I probably made mistakes and had to learn it then. Um, I think one of the things I did have, and this maybe comes from all the sports early on, I think the leadership side of it came relatively naturally to me, just understanding that people need to see a big picture vision and that if you're the person in front, you need to be communicating it to them on a regular basis. But I made a lot of mistakes when it came to, you know, kind of treating other people as if I was want to be, as how I would want to be treated, as opposed to molding my management style to who the person was. I made mistakes with, um, you know, feedback and not giving it the right way or not giving it at all or not wanting to hear it if people didn't like the way that I was doing things. I made mistakes with client management and that side of things as well. So there's so many, but I think the bigger thing for me is that if you don't feel uncomfortable and you don't look back on what you were doing as like, oh man, I can't believe how naive I was, then that's probably a sign you're not pushing yourself hard enough to grow. I definitely appreciate you sharing those lessons. Um, after Mullen, you returned to Vayner Media for four years, but this time to grow the London office, which is where you're based now. So there's a book that I read um, almost every year around blind spots that hold otherwise healthy businesses back. So when you think of your time at scaling, we're just using Vayner Media for reference because that's the business that you scaled in London there's potential blind spots that can hold you back from getting where you want to get to. Um, things like not onboarding people properly, not building yeah. your bench so that if you lose someone, you don't know who to replace them with, not having a hiring process, not focusing on lead generation. There's tons of them. For you, what are some blind spots when you look at other organizations that perhaps move over to Europe and try to scale a European operation or just launch in Europe and try to scale some blind spots that you see consistently over and over again that you kind of shake your head at going if you just focused on eliminating that your growth would be 2x what it is Mm. so for me so yeah i opened the office in london from scratch and definitely learned a lot along the way i think two things come to mind for me one it sounds obvious and everybody says it but i think the execution is where you either do it right or you do it wrong. It's not the theory of something. Everybody gets the theory, but the cultural adjustment and figuring out how you take the core culture of a business from the US or any market and bring it to another one, it can't be completely different, but it also can't be exactly the same. You know, we moved other Americans over from New York to London. And the way that I thought about it is, the skin and the muscles and the tissue of VaynerMedia in London needed to be different, but the skeletal structure needed to be the same. And so we tried to keep the pillars of what our culture was, but try to adapt it to what was local. I'll give you a very small example that, you know, for you here, people in the UK will be, will be, uh, will be a funny one. I remember in the very early days, we had conversations with some of the people that we hired locally about how Friday afternoons was for going for the pub, you know? how, you know, it's like, it's three o'clock, it's three 30. It's, you know, it's time to go to the pub and I'm coming from, you know, especially in the early days of VaynerMedia, you know, it was, it was definitely not signing off at three o'clock on a Friday. And that was the culture that I was kind of bringing with us. And we had trouble kind of adapting to that. And I hate to say it was as simple as kind of meeting in the middle, but a lot of it ended up being that. And so I think you need to think about the culture. And if you're coming from one place, how does that translate into the culture that you're going to? Otherwise it's not going to fit with the talent, but also the clients that you have there. And the other thing I would say, especially if you're going the other way and going to the US is 
a lot of clients or a lot of customers, if you haven't been successful, if you haven't done good work in their market, it doesn't really matter. You know, especially as an American client, if you haven't done work in the US, you might as well not have done it. And so I think that's the other thing is like, you got to get those quick wins on board. You got to get those early case studies, those clients that are going to vouch for you focus on, and those are going to be few and fewer, few and far between. But if you can get those first two to three to four clients in the door, hopefully that opens up the rest of it for you. Your business now, you're the founder of We Are Rival. Um, rather than me give the kind of 30, 45 second commercial, you'll do a much better job. So the mic is yours. All right. So Rival. So we are a marketing innovation consultancy. We work with businesses of all sizes to develop strategies and capabilities to help them grow faster. And it really comes from, you know, we we're talking before we press record. It's really a culmination of my 15 years of experience. I've learned a lot from a lot of really smart people along the way. But if you have to oversimplify my career, I'm kind of an entrepreneur that's always worked in startups. But because it's been agency side in the last two and a half years, it's been consultancy side. I've always worked for big businesses. So VaynerMedia, 15 people, our clients were PepsiCo and Unilever, you know, 11FS where I'm coming from, FinTech startup, but our clients were HSBC and Standard Chartered. And the thing that is so fascinating to me is I think I have this perspective on what is it about startups that allows them to grow faster than these big enterprise businesses? And it's not as simple as, well, they're small and they're young, so they can move quicker. I think fundamentally there is something they do differently in how they go to market and how they do their marketing. And that's not just like the ads they create or where they buy their media. It's actually within the DNA of the marketing practice. And so what we're trying to do with Rival and why it's even called Rival is we're trying to take a challenger marketing mindset and model into businesses that want to grow faster. And it, it could be a big business. It could also be a startup just kind of closing the gap on where are the opportunities to drive more growth. Um, so it's a lot of strategy work. I'm also really passionate about the culture and capability side of things. Um, you know, can we come in? It's all about having an impact. Can we come in and maybe do a workshop or do some sessions with an existing team to kind of uh, inject our perspective of what we've seen work within hyper-growth startups into these other companies? Um, and then the strategy work ends up being kind of brand or go to market for content strategy, paid media strategy. So it's not an advertising agency like where I'm coming from, because I think we can have a bigger impact if we fit in at that like management consulting level, working with CMOs or marketing leaders to give them those strategies and help on the capability side if they need it so that they can then drive the growth of their own business. Well said. It's it's clear to see that you've rehearsed that a couple of times. Um, I'll leave links to your socials below and to your website as well. And I'll reference that again before we finish up, uh, depending on where you're listening or watching this. Eric, when I was doing research for this, obviously, or naturally, I went through your LinkedIn page. And there was one post you put up within the last month that I was like, wow, that hit home. And it was, write words like they're expensive, not free. Can you expand on what you meant by that or what place you were in when you wrote that? Because I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the content I put out on LinkedIn because for the last couple of years, I've basically put out a post a day. So it's been a lot. And it's really my way of just kind of diarizing or documenting the thoughts and conversations I have with people day to day. So I've got just a note 
you know, a note on my computer. And every time I have a thought that comes to mind, or I have an interesting conversation with someone, I'll jot it down, and then I'll go back and expand on it. But a lot of a lot of what's come out have been, you know, tiny little thought nuggets like that. But what I mean by that, right, as if words are expensive, not free, is one of the things that I see, and I think this will actually be really relevant to your audience. You know, I always think of the Mark Twain quote, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write a short one, right? Simplicity is the highest form of complexity. There's so many quotes out there about the same thing. But one of the things that I have seen really differentiate the okay leaders from the great leaders, and I put myself not in that category, but in a category of someone who's been trying over the years to level himself up from just being okay to being pretty good. That's what all the greats say, you know that. (laughs) I do believe humility is really important. And maybe we can talk about that in a second. Um, But I really think that the great leaders are ones that are able to communicate something incredibly simply because simplicity allows for scale. The simpler you can say something, the more people are going to understand it. And so actually, you know, especially when I ran a bigger team and hopefully we get there with rival, but definitely as I was thinking about how we communicate the rival brand, and hopefully this comes across when people view our website, 2% of the time went to figuring out what to say. 98% of the time went to figuring out how to simplify it, how to clarify it, how to make sure that anybody or as many people as possible could really understand what it means. So I think about that all the time. Um, And I think that was just an interest for me, at least it was an interesting angle to think about it because simplicity and complexity, like those are abstract concepts kind of, but if you think of like words as being expensive, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I need to say less. I think it just jars people's perspective a little bit, which is what I try to do with some of the content I put out. You certainly do. You just said there before we move on that humility is, is a trait that you think is important. Yeah. You want to expand on that? 100%. So I think that confidence is one of the most important assets in you know, being successful at anything. You need to believe more in yourself or whatever you're doing than anybody else. And I think you see that. If you look at anybody who's successful, they likely have very high degrees of confidence. Now, confidence and ego are very closely related. And what I think separates those two things is humility meaning you can raise your confidence to the roof. You can have the most confidence of anybody in the world. If you do not have equal parts humility to balance it, then it's all ego and it becomes a negative thing. And the reason it becomes a negative thing is I think that self-awareness and the ability to take feedback are two of the most important traits for anybody who wants to constantly evolve. Because if you have self-awareness and the ability to take feedback, you understand where you are, what you're good, at what you're not good at, and you can learn from other people around you. And humility is what gives you those things. So humility allows confidence to not become ego. And it also allows you to be more self-aware and be more open to take feedback from people. So I think like anything, nature, nurture, it's both, right? So I think that those types of things that I've learned along the course of my career have probably settled in me because I'm naturally like, I'm not, I don't like being the front man. I don't like being out on stage. I don't like being in the spotlight. I think I naturally defer to that end of the spectrum, but I've thought a lot about those traits, both in myself, but also what I see in others. And, you know, you know, you know, Gary and his stuff and the people who uh, are a little bit closer to him know that 
for all the bravado, he actually has an incredible amount of humility as well. So mm. working with him so closely for seven years, I definitely learned a lot of that too. When you think of the challenger businesses, how important is speed? And when I say speed, I mean like, um, take for example, LinkedIn three years ago, executing on LinkedIn before your competition are there, but while your customers are there getting that advantage. Yeah. yeah. I think it's everything. Um, you know, one of the quotes I steal from Gary all the time is speed is the most important, most important competitive advantage of startups over traditional businesses, something to that extent. Um, how I've thought about it with rival, we've got this thing called the rival marketing framework, which is my, and has a lot of input from other smart people, our best stab at trying to break down what is it about challengers that lets them grow quickly. And there's four, uh, four building blocks, four mm -hmm. pillars, and then 12 building blocks within that. And the pillars are human brand, relevant solutions, intelligent deployment, but then the last one is constant evolution. And so within constant evolution, speed, agility, and a hunger to learn is how I break those down. So I really think that uh, being able to move quickly not only allows you to get to market and take on opportunities faster than your competitor, but it also gives you the opportunity to learn faster than they do. And if you're learning faster, then you're on a trajectory that's much steeper than someone who's not. Yeah. I'm going to take a far right here because we're almost at the end and I didn't know how to fit this in, but it was a question that I wanted to ask because I'm primarily in the B2B space. Um, again, a post you put up on LinkedIn of your thoughts on how you believe influencer marketing is still undervalued. Uh, the particular post you talked about, and I'm reading a couple of stats from my screen, was how Cash App grew 60% year on year. And based on research, retail banks, which Cash App is one, were spending $350 to $1,000 to convert to a customer. But when Cash App decided to leverage influencers, uh, it turned out that, that potentially they were only spending 20 bucks to acquire a new customer. So I can already hear people saying, that's great, Rain, but... I'm in a completely different industry or that won't work in my world. Um, what would you say to those who are in the B2B world that think influencer marketing is something for those in the B2C world? Yeah, I'm fascinated by influencer marketing in the B2B space mm. because I haven't really seen it done all that well. You've got affiliate, but that's not quite the same thing. So let me level it up for a second. I mentioned our rival marketing framework and I went through yeah. it pretty quickly. There's a mindset side and there's a model side. On the mindset side, the two pillars that I mentioned were the human brand and relevant solutions. On the model side, how you actually do things, I mentioned constant evolution, but the other one that I glossed over is intelligent deployment. And a big part of intelligent deployment for me comes down to finding the underpriced attention of your audience. So you need the right thing to say, which is the mindset side, but then you need to distribute it in a way that's cheaper and more effective than your competition is doing it. And so when it comes to influencers, the way that I think about them and that I encourage other people to think about them is I think we get too distracted and hung up on the tactic. We say influencer, we think of some person on Instagram who's a food blogger or whatever. But the way that I think about it is it's earned media. Marketing is owned media, paid media, or earned media. It's content you produce, it's uh, advertisements that you buy, or it's the attention of your audience that someone else has built up that you are trying to tap into. When I say PR, 
Nobody in B2B would be like, I don't think PR is right for me. Influencer is just a modern version of PR. Someone else has built the attention of your audience and you have an opportunity to go reach them through that outlet. Now that outlet is a person instead of a media outlet, but fundamentally it's the same thing. The thing that I think is really interesting is there actually are a couple platforms out there that are trying to do B2B influencer, but it's tough because you know I could be an influencer to someone looking to buy marketing services, but am I going to really let somebody pay me for me to promote that to the audience? I think it's a little bit different, but the fundamental uh, opportunity and philosophy is the same. Earned media is about finding the attention of your audience that someone else has built up and you being able to tap into it. And I think there's a big opportunity for B2B businesses, depending on the sector, depending on the size, depending on the budget, all that stuff, yes. But the attention of your audience is in other places, probably much more than it is within your own content and community. So how can you leverage those people to project your message or try to sell your product? I do think there's an opportunity there. Well put. And I can imagine they're in big YouTube channels, podcasts, media uh, companies, several different places. Two final questions for you, Eric. Have you got a, a definition of what, like a personal definition of what success means to you? Hmm. I do. I, um, so to my point about self-awareness, I really try to work on myself as much as possible. So it used to be that every week I'd spend a little bit of time kind of writing things down. And then every year I'd take all those notes and try to package them up. And I do somewhere have this five-year plan that I constantly update, but I've not looked at it in a while. And in there is my definition of what success looks like. So maybe I'll have to follow up with you and send it to you. Um, but I think, you know, I'm getting to the age, I guess you could say, where it's, I'm realizing that what I want to try to focus on is the impact I have on others rather than what I try to get myself. And I know that sounds cliche, but there's a reason it's cliche because everybody, or I think a lot of people end up getting there eventually. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to figure out what that means for me, but I think success would be feeling like the things I care about are taking care of my family, their health, my health, et cetera. And that I feel like I'm having, you know, the greatest impact I can with the skill set I have on as many of the people that I care about as possible, something in that direction. I love that. Final question. If you were in charge of adding a mandatory subject to the high school or secondary school curriculum, uh, what would it be and why? I think it would be something around emotional intelligence, something around how do you interact with other people? It's, it just, it boggles. I mean, there's a lot of good answers to this question because I think yep. there's a lot of the traditional education system that needs to be revamped which is fascinating to me, but um, it's unbelievable to me that so much of anybody's success and almost all of their happiness, if you really look at the, the research about it, comes down to their interactions with other people. And yet for the, you know, whatever year, 15, 18 years of formal education people get, there's almost nothing that focuses on that. So I think it's something about emotional intelligence, interacting with other people, um, something like that. It's an answer that has come up again and again and again. So you're not alone in that. One that comes up again that I would have never included is coding. It, way yeah. more popular than you think it would be. I put up a post on LinkedIn about a week ago and 1,500 people have voted and coding is in second place as a, as a subject people would like to see. But um, what's in Eric, first? what's in first is uh, 
managing a business, managing yeah. a business. Yeah. Or, I think or, the thing with that is, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that won't go into business, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think those, those are all good answers and all things that I wish I had learned. Um, cause I would have made less mistakes along the way. Eric, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I'll leave links to your company website and all your socials below, whether you're listening or watching this, but for today, Thanks for being one of my guests and I wish you continued success. Thank you. Really good to catch up. I appreciate it. Beautiful morning.